don't ask me why, but everybody seemed to know when they're going to die. And it didn't make them how old or how, how young they were. The person they called out for, I want my mum. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you're going to humans quite Do often. I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to Life on the Line and another of our video podcasts. Today, we're speaking with Reg Chard, a World War II veteran. Reg grew up amidst the hardship of the Great Depression and then volunteered to fight in the Australian Army in World War II. He fought against the Japanese at Milne Bay, on the Kokoda Trail, and at San Ananda. After the war, he married his childhood sweetheart, Betty, and they raised their family in Sydney's southwest. Today, at 98 years of age, Reg continues to keep the spirit of the diggers and army nurses alive through his volunteer work as a tour guide at the Kokoda Track Memorial Walkway in Concord, Sydney. Reg has been recognised for his community service efforts with an OAM in 2021. In 2022, Reg sees the publication of his memoir, The Digger of Kokoda, by Daniel Lane. Reg's official biography is published by Pam McMillan, and I'm his publisher. You can watch this video podcast on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash life on the line podcast or listen through your preferred podcast app spotify or our website www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com we're recording this conversation on a warm february day in 2022 in reg's home reg thank you so much for having us in your home and for coming on the program it's a pleasure now reg what year were you born 1923. So, Reg, I want to talk to you a bit about your childhood because your childhood is shaped by the shadow of the Great War, World War I, and then you lived through the Great Depression. Let's talk first about your father and his service in the First World War. Uh, my father was uh, 19 when he, he, he signed up in uh, 1916, 17. Um, he was sent to England first and then he was sent to, uh, to France um, he was in the 35th Infant Battalion and he also had three brothers with him. Uh, now, two of them never came home. Uh, my father came home with a... Uh, was, he was wounded at um, uh, Passchendaele and he got a lump of shrapnel uh, just underneath his heart and, um, of course, in those days they, they wouldn't dare touch it. So uh, he was sent back to all the shot in England, uh, to Salisbury in England, and um, they sent him straight home. Um, he lived with that for the rest of his life. Um, he became a very heavy drinker and, of course, um, when he got drunk, he was very argumentative. And, of course, I was only a small boy at that time. I, I mean, until after the war, the, he came home. I wasn't even born. I was born in 1923, as we just said. Um, and he battled with that thing for the rest of his life. It never worried him. So, But I really think in the end he, he became pickled. He got used to it. And as I grew up, um, 
I used to wonder why, you know, he, he used to work every day. Don't ask me how, but he used to go to work every day as a carpenter. And he used to wear a suit, a three-piece suit, a vest and a, a shirt and a tie and a hat, like they all used to in those days. And it fascinated me to see him. He could be up 60 or 70 feet up in the air on a building and still have the same things on. But that's how they worked. And anyway, it was later in life that uh, after Betty and I were married, um, he started to get a bit delusional and then um, went over to see him and my uh, mother one Saturday. And I said to Mum, what's, uh, what's Dad doing? She said, oh, he's watching the pictures on the wall. Well, TV wasn't out in those days. And because when I went into the I said, what are you doing, Pop? He said, I'm just watching the people swimming at Bondi. And I thought, oh, you know, this is bad. So I went out to my mother and I said, I think, you know, it's about time we got Dr Quinn, our family doctor, uh, to come and have a look at him. So the doctor came and anyway, he said to him, Herb, we're going to send you for a nice holiday. So they put him over in Gladesville. And he was there for about six months. And anyway, uh, as I put him in, I was at the time, um, I was the oldest one of the family looking for him. And... Uh, they made me his next of kin. I said, don't make them his wife me. So I got a phone call in the very early hours of the morning and they couldn't find him at Gladesville. They said, we've lost him. So I said, what do, you, what do you mean you've lost him? They said, well, he's not in the grounds of Gladesville. So I rang my other brother over at the Taramara and um, we went looking for him. So we went in and we said to the, a lot of the people who were in there, where do you normally go? when you want to get away from here. And they all said, oh, we head over towards Gladesville Bridge. So we, Ray and I went over Gladesville Bridge and sure enough, there he was. He'd, he'd uh, had a heart attack and he died. And then, of course, they had to have an autopsy of him and that piece of shrapnel had moved and it cut one of his veins he bled to death. And he was 82, so I'm sure, I'm sure he must have been pickled in the end lived most of his life with that shrapnel in his chest sort of a hanging ticking time bomb over him and he never knew when that was going to come he came home as you described with demons which led to an alcohol problem but you would have only grown up knowing that version of him did your mother ever talk about what he was like before the war oh, i asked my mother and her, her exact words were she never told me for years but when i went away she said, your father was just exactly like you are now. Good-hearted, do anything for anybody, but you know, instead of put up with these terrible things. So don't take notice of me. This is normal. Um, yeah, so you know, people don't understand just what servicemen have to put up with. You have not. You, you can explain from now to the day that you die, as the saying goes. It doesn't mean a thing because you have to, you had to have been there and suffered what everybody suffered. So. Tell me about your mother, Reg. Uh, my mother was a very kind woman. Of course, there was a, we had, she had 10 children. Uh, the eldest was a, a, a young lady. I, I, that's the only one of the family that I never ever knew because she only lasted, she died at eight months old. And I used to ask my mother, what did she pass away from? And anyway, she used to get upset. So, I never asked her again. Um, I had uh, five brothers and four sisters and um, none of us drank and none of us smoked because we just assumed my father was enough you know, for me. He used to smoke a pipe and um, if he wasn't drinking, he was smoking. So, you know, one, one or the other. Um, 
And as uh, you know, my sisters and brothers grew up because I was the, uh, I had uh, the first sister's name, the one that passed away was home, was Leela. Uh, then there was Edna, and then there was uh, uh, David, and there was Myra, and then there was Jack Chad. He was the one above me. Then myself, then uh, Ray, Jean, and Ken. So that was the whole family. And today, there's only myself and my brother. The brother's just was underneath me, Ray. Um, he's in a nursing home, so uh, they've all gone, unfortunately. And it's funny, when I look back, I've seen, even when I, was to, when I went over, first went to Kokoda, there used to be 22 veterans on the last one left. I've so, so I've seen them all go. We were talking before we started recording, Reg, about what defined defines your generation, what's made it so different and in the eyes of many so exceptional. And it's not just the experiences of World War II, it's rebuilding the nation post-war, it's been brought up by parents who experienced the First World War. And another significant aspect that I think really fostered toughness and resilience is living through the Great Depression and growing up with that as a child. Can you talk to me more about that? Oh, okay. Uh, During the Depression, people don't realise that nobody had any money. Like today, you get... Uh, money from Centrelink. In those days, you got nothing. What you used to do, every Monday morning, we lived at uh, Francis Street in Marrickville and used to have to go up to Marrickville Town Hall and they knew all about you when you got there. They gave you a card and they knew how many was in the family and well, I used to take a bully card up and my father used to take me up. And um, they'd give you your, your fruit for the week. Uh, they'd give you butter coupons. They'd give you uh, bread coupons. I'd give you meat coupons, uh, milk coupons. You never paid for anything. And uh, and the reason my father used to, c- to come with me is he smoked, as I said, he smoked his pipe and you know, they used to give him two ounces of Havelock pipe tobacco. And the moment he got that, he was gone. I was left. And I used to have to cart all these things home in a billy cart. And because there was no rent, um, uh, Lang was the Premier of those days and uh, all rents were paid by the government. So what were you, about 10, under 10? Yeah, I was under 10, yeah. And you had the responsibility of bringing the family meals home for the week. And don't ask me why my father picked me, but he always did. Don't ask me why, I have no idea. And, of course, you know, walking in your bare feet, um, today, that's the only part of my body I've never, ever had any problems with. And I've got feet as flat as this table as my son will sell me, I'll tell you. Sorry, because the feet are... you. With shoes, you only got to wear shoes to Sunday school. Sunday mornings, yeah. yeah. And that was and the all. moment you come home from from uh, from Sunday school. Sunday school, your shoes and came, your shoes and socks came off that till next and that, Sunday, and that's to keep them in a nice, good condition so you don't wear through them. That's you, right. Because you couldn't afford a new pair. Could, well, you couldn't afford new ones. No. And clothing, as there was such a lot of uh, boys, the oldest one when he bought when he got a new pair of trousers, they went to the next one and the next one and that. This is where we got our clothes from. And some of the things I used to wear, I used to hate them. But you had to wear something, so I just had to wear them. And um, another thing my father used to do, which was in those days, this is how they treated ladies, most mostly. Uh, in those days, everybody used to have suitcases. You'd go to the grocery shop to, with your coupons and everything was carried in suitcases. So you'd see your lady struggling home with you know, a couple of suitcases and my father just look at me and go, he wouldn't carry him, but, you know, me, okay. So he'd go up to the lady and say, excuse me, can I help you with your, your, 
your suitcases. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Of course, well, I'd go that way with a lady. Didn't know how far they lived in fatherhood. Go down to the Memorial Club in Anzac, down to Maryville. You know, so that's the sort of thing that happened all the time in those days. And if you went, just say for instance, we come, our family come to visit your family. We took all our food with us. If they come to to meet to your family, they'd bring their food with us because we didn't have any extra. And um, there was no such thing as saying, um, "Oh, I don't like that, Mum. I don't like that roast beef. Can you give me something else?" Uh, and because I didn't like hot curry, and they, mother used to make hot curry. And as soon as I'd sit down, I'd say to Mum, "Oh, can I have a glass of cold water? You know, to have with it." My father say, "Eat it like it is, and if you don't like it, you'll get it tomorrow night." And you did get it tomorrow night, so you eventually ate it. So you never asked anything, I, I want this, I want that. You took what you was given. Christmas time, you get one toy and that was it. And th- things were really tough. And at school, um, my mother, every year, she used to get um, pneumonia. Um, and I, I always remember the, the old, old doctor, I'm just trying to think of his name, he was right next to Maryville Hospital. Um, I used to have to run up when mother used to, Cough and everything, and it was always me. Don't ask me why. Anyway, it's Dr. Trindle. And anyway, I'd go up and knock on the door and he'd say, What's the problem? Oh, mum's in bed sick, she's coughing. So anyway, he'd say to me, Okay, just a second, boy. That's what he used to call me. Just a second, boy. He said, I'll get my car out and I'll drop you home. We'll have a look. And his car was a 1927 Chev, you know, with a touring hood on it. And he popped me in. Anyway, I thought it was king of the road, you know, to get the lift home. Anyway, he'd come in there. And I'd wait outside the door and he'd come in and say, yeah, your mum's got pneumonia again. He said, so I, uh, I said, what, what, you know, what do you do? He said, okay, she's got to stop in bed um, to keep nice and warm and give her two aspirates every morning. That's what, and so every winter she used to get, and of course I never, I'd, get, I'd make sure everybody was in the house was right. I'd run to school, to Maryville West School, run home at lunchtime to make sure, you know, we got the lunch and that because the others are out looking for work. You're a normal school boy. You're running home on your lunch break and your school day, Get maybe start getting dinner ready, look after your mum, go back to school, finish the day, come home, make the dinner, make sure everyone else has been fed in the family. That's right. Your siblings older and younger than you. Yes, yeah. And you're just a school kid. And this is what's been put upon your shoulders that, at such an age. That, that's just how it happens. That's right. So, uh, um, of course, I can remember I was in sixth class. I don't know how I got to sixth class, but that's that's where I left it, as a matter of fact. Reg, let's talk about the great love of your life, Betty, and the day you met her, or the day you first saw her. Tell me that story. Okay. Um, we lived in Woodhill Road at Dulwich Hill, which was just near the, the station, and um, it, it was a, a downhill from, from the, the monastery up on top of the hill, and um, Betty used to always come past there, and I used to... See her go past. I didn't know where she lived at the time. And anyway, um, I just said, oh, she's a nice-looking girl. And anyway, I was, you have no idea how shy I was in those days. And um, so anyway, after a while, you know, afternoon, I used to make, make sure I would be out, you know, to see where she was going home. And how I actually met her in the end, I, I really don't know. I, that's one thing I can never remember. But all I remember, I, I, you know, I got to talking to her and um, – uh, she, I found out she lived on the other side of Dulwich Hill train station. And if she was that close to my place, I could have thrown a cricket ball from my place to her place. So 
Um, and you looked at your mum and what did you tell I was, her? I said to mum, I'm going to marry that girl. My mother said to me, oh, Bridge, get inside, you're a fool. And anyway, um, when I actually did marry Betty, the day of the wedding, I said to my mother, well, what did I tell you? And she says, no comment. That was, that was my mother. So, But, I mean, um, and, and it's funny, she was the only girlfriend I've ever had. I never had anybody else. That's beautiful. Al Reg, I want to jump ahead to the Second World War and what I want to set a little context for our listeners and viewers today in that when you join up, you do so because you really feel passionate about it and you have every reason not to. Uh, you've started going out with Betty, your beautiful young girlfriend. Uh, you have seen what war can do to a man through your father's demons and you were an apprentice baker. And so by going to war, you'd be giving up that trade. That's right. So you had every reason not to, yet you still are determined and you go and join up. What was the calling? Why did you feel so passionately about serving? Well, uh, things were really grim in those days. Like over in Europe, uh, the, the Axis were running riot over everything and the Japanese were running riot you know, over China. They'd taken China and... Because we heard of the things of the rape of Nanking, and uh, you'd hear you, you can see yourself if you get onto uh, your computers. That's really live still today. And anyway, we knew what had happened if they come you know, into Australia. So I was uh, apprenticed under, um, to Harry Fleming. He was a, uh, a patient, baker and pastry cook. Anyway, I was, my brother he was a plumber, uh, one above me, Jack. And anyway. He joined, uh, he was in the 9th Division uh, and they put him in as a, a specialist plumber. And he was very, I had a violent temper. I always had a violent temper. And I, I never knew I had it until one day I, st- I was running home uh, from school and anyway in Wardell Road at Marigville uh, there was a, uh, a young bloke there who was two years older than me and he had a lot of the girls around him and anyway, as I run past, he said something, I won't repeat what he said about my mother. And I dropped what I was carrying and the next minute I knew I had him over the, I was going to drop him on the train line. And how lucky that there was, there was a, a, um, a milk farm across the other side of the road and blokes, I didn't realise. Blokes come running over where they grabbed me and grabbed the bloke and um, I won't mention his name. And um, I've never seen him since. But, you know... That's when I realised I had a bad temper. And during the war years, it helped me a lot. Uh, so anyway, I said to Betty, you know, that I was going to join up and she she wasn't very happy. And you know, she said, uh, you know, I'll, um, have, what about if we get married before you go? And I was 18. Uh, my birthday was the 31st of October, 1923. And this was the 17th of November, um, 1941. And anyway, uh, my father already said he knew I was going to join up. And anyway, he said, well, whatever you do, don't marry Betty. And I said, why? And he said, because, well, they knew her quite well. We go together since I was 16. And he said, because she is a very uh, quiet young lady. And if you go away and she has a child before you go and you don't come home, her life's going to be ruined and so is yours. So don't ruin hers. So I didn't. And I can tell you she was a very happy young lady. But then, uh, during the war years, um, the only way that people found out that 
when their sons or husbands or brothers were killed, they used to get a telegram. And so where Betty was working, um, a couple of telegrams, uh, girls, they used to have young girls deliver them, and then anyway, they'd come into the room and everybody would shiver because they knew what was happening. So that's when Betty realised how lucky she was because the women, some women couldn't care less. Bad luck, he's gone, you know, I'll get somebody else. And others were just the opposite. That was the end of their life. So... Um, you joined to defend your loved ones I, at home. I, well, that's what we all did. Yeah, that's what we joined for because we knew what happened. If they, And we did find out exactly what they were like later in life, you know, or later on the campaign, yeah. So... Uh, that that was that part of it. So, when you join, where do you find yourself posted to? Um, well, I, I told Harry Fleming, my boss, because in this in those days, the Australian government was called Manpower, and they could come to you or you or you, and just give you all the immaterial what you were doing. And if you weren't producing something for the war effort, they'd just say, okay, next Monday morning you got to go to this address. They give you, a, a, you know, the, all the paperwork. And they did this to Betty. This is how I know, and I've still got the paperwork here. Uh, I'm a hoarder. Anyway, the paperwork said, okay, Miss, Miss Benham, you've got to report to some place on Addison Road, and this is where, where I joined up, to be quite honest, in Addison Road. And she said to the bloke, well, what if I don't want to go? And he said, okay. He said, um, if you're sick, you've got to have a doc certificate for one week and turn up the next Monday morning. If you don't, the police will arrive at your door a pick up, there's no trial, you'll go to Long Bay for six months. And that was it. So what they always try to do, they always try to get you a, a job closer to home and you got more money. And so people used to love it. And so that's when I, I, jo I, I joined up and uh, I went down, first of all, I went to Martin Place and because I was, you know, I was young and not used to doing things like that. Anyway, the bloke said to me, what do you want? Uh, that's how he spoke. What do you want? I said, I want to join the army. Got your parents' consent? Yeah. He was, anyway, he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm apprentice of bacon and post cook. And I better not say what he told me to do anyway. He said, finish your trade and then come back. So I went back and seen Harry Fleming and Boston told him. And he said, what are you going to do? Are going to finish your trade? I said, no, I'm going to go and get a job for a week uh, somewhere else. So I went and got a job as a storeman for a week and in those days they used to give you a little envelope with your money in it. So I went back the next week to the same bloke, the same question, what do you want? Told him the same question. Uh, what do you do? Here's me pay, a storeman. He said, okay, uh, where's your letter? The parents showed him. He said, okay, sign here. So you sign up for the duration of the war. It could have lasted 20 years or, or one year, who knows? And, uh, and an extra six months thereafter. So when the war finished, if they wanted to keep in for six months longer, they could keep in. So that was it. So anyway, he said, okay, uh, go home. He said, you'll get, you'll get a telegram within the next two days to tell you where to go. Reg, I think we could talk about Kokoda and your experiences there for many hours. And I very shamelessly want people listening or watching this to go and buy your wonderful biography that's out as this uh, podcast, video podcast releases. So we're not going to cover all your Kokoda experiences in depth because I think we'd have to talk for five or six hours for one thing. So I'm going to ask you a few general questions about it at first and then we'll pick one or two anecdotes and perhaps to unpack. Okay. First, let's start with when did you hear the news first that you were being sent to this place called New Guinea? Did you know where New Guinea was? Did you know what you were going there to do? Like just those first moments of knowing what the, you know, the next uh, stage of your life is going to be like. 
Well, we didn't we didn't know where it was going. Uh, when we left Greta, they put us on a, a train. Uh, it took us up to um, Roma Street in Brisbane. Now, in those days, uh, our train lines in width are still the same, four foot eight and a half. And the Queensland trains were three foot six. So you pulled in one side of Roma Street and got off to your New South Wales train and got into the Queensland train. So they didn't tell us where it was going, so away we go. And after 14 days, we arrived at Townsville. We didn't know where we were. We had to ask people, where, where are we? Townsville. So they marched us over to the uh, race course. We slept there on the, where the horses floats for the night time. And so the next day they told us, okay, the ship's in there. It was called the Taruna. It used to go up the, uh, the, the Deal River. It was half passenger and half a cargo ship. And a flat bottom ship to start with. Anyway, they said, okay, uh, we'll tell you now what you're going to take away with this. So I can tell you what we went away with. We went away with one pair of boots, one pair of socks, uh, one pair of gaiters, one pair of khaki shorts, a khaki shirt, white un- one pair of white underpants, one white singlet, uh, a tin hat, a felt hat. In most of our cases, a 303 from the Leanderfield for the First World War, a bayonet, um, two banners, which are about two inches square, uh, which were useless for anything but just a little bullet hole. Um, one water bottle, uh, 200 rounds of ammunition across their chest in uh, like the cowboys used to have, and 24 hand grenades and a pack on your back. So anyway, so we all wrote letters, see, because you weren't allowed to tell anybody where you were or where you were going. So we all wrote letters and we didn't know what to do. We had no money to start with. Of course. So we didn't know what to do with them. So anyway, we were all walking down 2 o'clock in the morning and, of course, we expected there to be nobody. As we started to walk down to the, the ship, people everywhere, they knew we were going, but we didn't. And anyway, um, Titch and I, that was one of my mates, uh, we all had these letters each and we thought, what the bloody hell are we going to do with them? Anyway, just was ready to up the gangplank and the bloke was standing there on his own. And he had a, we didn't realise at first, he just had something across here, what it was, it was a big haversack. And we said to him, mate, can you do us a good turn? He said, yeah, what do you want? And I said, well, you know, we've got all these letters to pay. So I said, we've got no money. I'll oh, give them to me. Every one of those letters got home. But what nobody said that they're going aboard a ship. They just said that they won't be able to write for a while. That's all, all there was. Uh, so... Th- Two o'clock in the morning, uh, the ship, that was the next night, the ship pulled out and I always remember on the ship's radios uh, they played Red Sails in the Sunset and um, Harbour Lights. As soon as the ship got to uh, be like going outside Sydney Heads, the same type of thing, the moment it got to the heads there was no more music and most of those men never ever heard any more music then on. We never had anything like that up in New Guinea at all. Uh, so after five days, we arrived up in, um, we didn't know where it was, so the first man going down the gangplank, saying at the black down the bottom, mate, where are we? And he said, Port Moresby, where's that? New Guinea. Oh, right, thanks, where's that? We had no idea. We were really dumb, I'm not kidding you. So they marched us off there to a place called um, Simpsons Gap, and we just lay, it's just like going down to Botanic Gardens and just laying wherever you want to lay. And so the next, you lay there, the next morning they uh, got us to unload, start to unload ships. And then after about uh, a month, we're still out in the open. 
And um, of course, was getting food there, was getting um, cooks were cooking, it was called MV, which is meat and vegetables, that's all out of a cans. And um, that's when the Japanese started bombing, and they realised you know, how many people were starting to come there, so they started bombing every day, and the ships would disappear as much as they could. And they caught one, which one ship was called the McDewey. Uh, they got her at the wharf one day, but she actually got away, but then they came back the next day and they pattern bombed it. They come in from four different areas at the same time, of course. She had nowhere to go. So that, and the heat when you walked down the gangplank was just un, unbearable. It took you, everybody was gasping for breath, you know, and took about four days, five days to, to acclimatise to it. And the humidity as well, I imagine. The humidity, and in Port Moresby, it was hot, dusty, and it didn't rain. But, um, and then when they took out from Port Moresby to Owls Corner, it's just like going from here up to um, the Blue Mountains to go and see the Three Sisters. And when you walk down to the Three Sisters and you come to a fence and you look down, that's what it's like when you get to Owls Corner and you, you look down at the Golden River. That, that's the start of, of the Old Stanley Ranges. And then you look up and you, see, you can see the rest of them. And it's just, they just disappear in a fog. That's, that's what it's like. And as you go up, it's, it's 25 miles up, and, and as I'm joking, I'm not joking, it's uphill all the way, and you can get on a push bike at Owls Corner and give yourself a push, take your feet off the pedals, and you'd, you'd ride it down to Port Moisture. That's what it was like. And as you start to go up the mountains, it got cooler and cooler and cooler. Just like when you go up the mountains here in a train in the middle of summer, you think, oh, it's boiling hot, and all of a sudden, lovely air comes in. That's, that's what it was like. And, of course, once you got in the jungle, it was freezing to cold all night. What month and year is this, Reg? And we're in April 1942. Today, Kokoda is revered and greatly respected, and the history of that is uh, reasonably well-known and taught in Australia. But it's also a common tourist attraction now for people to go walk part of the trail. Can you tell me what it was really like back then, walking that with you guys, the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels, and not knowing what's around the next corner, the tension, the suspense, and the conditions? Well, the old, tra- the old, old Stanley Mountains, uh, there's two mountains up there. One is, is uh, Mount Bellamy, and that's the same height as Mount Kosciuszko, which is the highest point in Australia. The trail itself wouldn't be as wide as this table. And, and of course, as you go into the jungle, it gets darker and darker, and all the trees sort of make a canopy. So once you go into them, you never see the blue sky. You don't, you don't see the sun. So it's dark the whole time. And is that claustrophobic? If it's, if it's wider or less than the width of you and the distance you and I are and you've got this roof over you, they must get a bit tunnely. It's funny, we had no feelings. I know, I know it sounds silly to say, but, I mean, you just accepted everything as it come because I, haven't, I can't answer that one. But nobody ever said... And another thing I've always... Think I lay in bed early as the morning. Think lots of things. I never heard anybody say I've got a toothache, a backache, or a headache. No one complained. They just got. Don't ask me why. Yeah. So yeah. So the same thing was when you said you know claustrophobic. Never heard anybody say anything. They just took what was what was there because they didn't know any differences. I go. So you're there. The canopy blocks out the sky. Tell me more. Okay. Um, and, of course, in the daytime, uh, you're going to walk single file. And um, the worst part, the worst person to be is the person in the front. 
the person in the front, because he, he's the one that's, that's leading. And he doesn't know, as you said, when you go around the corner, whether the Japanese are sitting there, whether the one that woodpeckers did, they're waiting for you to turn the corner, which they, they were. And the other one was the person at the back. Because when you start to get sick with malaria, you start to sway. And as you sway, you're in front of me, and because you don't look back, you're too busy watching, trying to find, watch where you're going. Now there's trunks of trees are growing, you're falling over all the time. And when you look back to say something, he's not there. He's just falling over the side. You don't bother looking because you've got no ropes and you can't see him anyway. And uh, so the bloke in the front, stay, he might stop there for whatever. Could be two minutes, could be five minutes. He'd say, I've had it. I'll go back in the middle so the next bloke will come up. And this, this is how it got the whole... In the end, we had to work out everything we had to learn the hard way, you know. Um, s- some blokes could stop in the front a lot longer than others and, and of course, the first bloke would be looking in front of him, the bloke behind would be looking left, trying to see who's sitting on the right, and the bloke behind him would be looking the other. We're trying to look everywhere at the one time. And I've, I've seen men up there, lived up there for three or four months, never ever seen a Japanese, but they've all been killed. They used to get in the, as, as you come out into the more open part, because it varies, it's freezing cold in the, in the jungle itself of the night time, um, and, and as you come out of the jungle, you come into clearings and then it's hot and you know, windy and dry and then you'll go back in the jungle again. It just it, it varies all the time. There's, there's that many different uh, variations of country in the, same, in the same country itself. It's just, it's just unbelievable. And people of today, uh, they say they walk the Kakata Trail. They don't. What they do is they either fly to Kakata and walk back to Owls Corner, or, or they, fl- they fly to Owls Corner and walk from there to, to Kokoda. But then they've got another 65 miles to go to the, to the, the east coast. If we imagine a map on the table where uh, you're Port Moresby, I'm San Ananda, Kokoda as the village is somewhere here, and that's people walk that segment, and then as you say, then there's so much actual more that you guys were covering, and the, the, so much extra distance. Well... I, I always say to people, because people say to me, oh, well, how do you know where you were? I can honestly tell you, everybody, I always tell people the same thing, I always knew three times where I was. I knew when I was at Owls Corner, I knew when I was at Cater because it was a small airstrip and a, a, a village there, and I knew when we was over on the uh, east coast of Bunagana Centre because we hear the, ocean, the Indian Ocean. And other than that, I have no idea where we were. And days... The only time we ever knew what month it was is if we've got reinforcements come up and you say to the mate, what month is it, mate? We had no idea. Um, okay, like uh, Betty and my mother, not only me but all the men, uh, we never had wrote letters for six months. We had no paper and everything we had, you know, I had photos of Betty and my parents, etc. And in the end you start to throw everything away because everything was just saturated. So we never wrote... For six months. Never got any mail for six months. So our parents didn't know where we were at any time. And I always remember when I came home from the hospital ship, my, the first night my mother and Betty and all the family arrived, my mother said to me, where were you? Had no idea in the wide world where we were. Some place called New Guinea, which you probably still didn't she, know where She wouldn't was. know where it was either. So that's, that's what it was like, yeah. 
but it's a terrible, terrible place, and the diseases you you have no idea the diseases you, well, they still affect as Robert can concern. That's why I've been no good this week. It wasn't malaria; it was just something different. Well, Reg, you mentioned there that no one was complaining about anything. They're all just getting on with it, which I think says so much about your generation. But in your own mind, day to day, are you thinking a bit, you know, back your siblings or your mother or Bessie thinking about home or are you just so focused on the day to day? I mean, you don't know where you are, what you're doing or why you're doing it. So what goes through your mind each day as you have to trudge through the jungle and suffer through conditions that most people can't imagine or relate to? Uh, okay, the easiest way to describe it, every person didn't make them say, how are, of course, you know, uh, we, was, we had old men, we had one man, uh, I, I, I better not say his name because same reason, uh, he was 64, he was in the First World War. And we said to him, why the hell did you join up, you know? But we found out later, he was the one with all experience, he was the one who taught us. And um, everybody, like it was how old, I said his age was specific because I was 18 and he was 64 at the same time. And we all, when we had, weren't in action, everybody was talking about home, home, their wives, their mothers, girlfriends, etc., etc. That's all they ever knew about. And I knew all the men within my company. I knew all the girlfriends' names. I knew they had brothers and sisters. They, you know, that that was it. That's all that kept you going was home. That's all any anybody ever spoke about. Not about the war. Just home, home, home. What's why you were there? That's 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 what kept you going. And people said, "Well, how how could you keep on going?" And because food was up in the mountain, um, we started off with a tin of bully beef between six men. Because no knives and forks, they just opened it, and um, it had a little key on the top, and the whole top would fall off, and they'd just break up and give you a piece and you a piece. And by by the handful, just a not a handful. Oh, sorry, but in the palm of your hand. In the palm of your hand. Yeah. And, of course, then if you had a fuzzy wuzzy with you, you had to give him half of yours. So they brought up everything, the food, uh, the ammunition, and then they'd carry back all the wounded. They were unbelievable people. And um, so after about a week, a, a box of um, bully beef was pretty heavy to carry, believe me, over that condition. So then they brought up uh, tins of baked beans. Same thing, you know, they'd pour a tin into some in your hand and then from then on for four and a half months we'd be on dried apricots, dried prunes and dehydrated apple because they're light. Mm. So they just give you a handful. And so that's when we all started losing weight. Okay, we all got weighed before we went away and I was 10 stone 9 and uh, when they weighed me at Concord Hospital, I was 6 stone 5. And everybody, don't matter how big or how small you are, everybody right lost roughly a third of their body weight. And people just to say, well, how do you keep on going? So I, what I tell the younger people over there, I'm talking about ones, you know, from 14 upwards, later in your life when you get, you know, in your 20s or maybe even 30s, you'll have to do something. And you think to yourself, oh, whatever it happens to me, I can't do that. And then you drill and builds up in your body. And once that builds up, you become superhuman. And that's that's what we lived on, a drilling. Once it's there... It, it stops with the whole time. You had two significant enemies in New Guinea. One was disease, and we'll come back to that, and sort of the natural challenges of the jungle. The other, of course, was the enemy you were sent there to fight, the Japanese. 
what were they like as an enemy and what were some of your first experiences against them? They were vicious. That's the only word I, I can use, as vicious. Um, if you got a, a, a... What the Japanese found out as an ordinary bullet, uh, you know, as the brass capsule with the eminol in it, and then there's the, the little lead part, that's what hits you. So they found out if they cut the lead with a pen knife or any sort of a knife and they shot you at it, as it come out of the barrel of the rifle or the machine gun, instead of hitting, you know, just one little hole, it opened up like this so the further it came towards you, you know, the bigger it got. And, of course, if it hits you in the tummy, it'd knock you over, flatten you and... Because there's nothing, we had no doctors up in the mountain. Dr. McGregor was back in Port Moresby in the hospital. It's a way to ensure you bleed out. You'd bleed to death. Well, you didn't bleed to death because if we were being pushed backwards, which we were for the first couple of months, believe me, and I, I always say anybody that went up there and never said they run backwards were never up there. So if you've got one of these tummy wounds, um, you're going to die. There's nothing you can do about it. So... If you was my mate and I got one of these tummy wounds, you'd wait till the rest moved away and you just put your rifle against my brain and pull the trigger and walk away. And that was it. And the youngest person that I know, I can tell you his name, but I won't, I'll tell you afterwards. Uh, he was 16 and he got one of these tummy wounds and he was, he was killed on his birthday. 16. So, yeah, th th things were pretty tough, I assure you. Um, there was, of course, you experienced a variety of engagements with them. There's a time you're pinned down by snipers to the kind of traps they could leave as well. Yeah, well, um, as we as we gradually pushed the Japanese back, and we didn't realise, I found out more after the war was over uh, on the History Channel by uh, the Emperor of, of Japan, Hirohito, he wasn't supposed to know anything about the war, but he kept a diary, and I don't—I still don't know who found it anyway. And he had all the th all the particulars in it, and we found that the Japanese—they got within one day of Owens um, Corner. Now, if they'd have got to there, they would have run downhill for the rest of it. And once they took Port Moresby, this country was gone. We have people have no idea just how close they got. We was on—they were on Irabaya um, Ridge, and we was on um, on. Uh, Another ridge. Here we are. That's all right. Uh, was about half a mile apart. And anyway, um, all of a sudden, we sent scouts out all the time. Uh, that was another job. The scouts went out and if they sent out seven, four wouldn't come back. And this was standard practice, you know. If you sent out ten, maybe three or maybe six wouldn't. Because they'd be sitting there waiting for you. They knew you'd come, you're going to come. And you had to come through that door, so they'd just sit and wait for you. And um, anyway, the scouts went out and they come back and they said they're gone. And we didn't realise what was going on. And, and we found out after the war, the reason why they went backwards is because they'd come that far, they'd run out of food uh, at a place called Myola. They turned to cannibalism, I won't tell any more than that, and Australian troops. Um, we found out after the war that they were ordered to return they never said they never said about uh, you know um, go backwards. It was always about face and come back, go back to where you came from. 
In other words, they had to go back to uh, to Buna, and there's going to be another twenty thousand troops there waiting for them, and they're going to come back over the mountains. Now, if they'd have done that, there's no way in the wide world because we was in the, by the time we got to Buna, we was in the same position as what they were when they got to Uruguay. We, we were buggered, and because when they got there, the Americans had landed in the Solomon Islands, and end of story. But um, yeah, but they were, the things that the things that they would do, you have you have no idea. The cruelest race that I've ever I never thought human beings could be so cruel, especially to, to white ladies. That's all I'll say. That is a very confronting story that's detailed in your book, and I think we'll leave it there for today on that story. But that there's a lot there you detail of what you saw. And the history books paint that part of the war that way for a reason, we'll say. Reg, do you remember one of the first times you would have fired your rifle in battle, in action against uh, Japanese troops that you could see? As Robert often said, what's it like? And I said, well, once you start to hate something, it's no problem at all. You had an emotional detachment from yeah. what you were doing. Yeah. You, you just think, well, it's either him or me, so the quickest... You know, whoever pulls the trigger quickest, that that's it. And after that, it just it's nothing. You got no, you got no feelings whatsoever. You got more feelings when you come home. To be quite honest with you. Well, Reg, we'll touch on that in a moment. And as I alluded to before, of it, you have many experiences with the Japanese that again you've detailed in your book. So we'll leave that there. But the other great battle that was a losing battle for all our soldiers in New Guinea ultimately was disease from. You know, scrub typhus, you still have mal- a couple of bouts of malaria each year to this day. Yeah. Uh, and there's a list, laundry list, long litany of diseases I could go through. Can you talk just about watching your colleagues, your friends just get struck down and by disease and have to be carried away from the action, yourself included, and what that was like where you're not just losing men to conflict but just to nature? Well, there was more people... Uh suffered with the uh, injuries, like all those diseases, than the real casualties, the ones that was killed. Um, and the thing, when you got malaria in those days, you just collapsed boom. And this is where your mate had to pick you up and carry it all such times he found um, uh, the fuzzy wuzzies. And um, they were the kindest people. I don't, rem- I don't remember twice um, up in the mountains somewhere I don't remember no more. When I woke up, I was in um, Port Moresby, 2nd 9th Australian General Hospital. That's where I met Sister Rome. And she was a, a remarkable... Why she was so remarkable, uh, that's how grim things got because when we was pushed back to Imata Ridge, um, there was no white ladies in New Guinea, only the ones who were captured and uh, these nursing sisters. They were all ordered out of New Guinea because things were grim. So the sister Ruth Campbell and two others, they refused to leave. So, Reg, can we back uh, back up a moment? You're struck down with scrub typhus, and you're carried off the battlefield, as it were, and you wake up in hospital. Right. How long are you in hospital in New Guinea before you're sent home? Uh, well, first of all, you're unconscious for fourteen days, um, and what they do when uh, they get you back there, the beds are roughly about as tall as not quite as tall as this table, and because they haven't got to do nothing for you, you're unconscious, um, 
they put you onto a stretcher with wheels on it, or the men orderlies do rather, and push you underneath the bed. Now they're not being nasty. Uh, all they've got to do is three times a day is come along, open your mouth, and pour quinine down. That's all they can do for you. And so you either wake up or you don't. And eight out of every ten died. And um, the only good thing about it is where of malaria, all the different malarias, which was bacterial, malignant, and cerebral malaria, they're the three types, uh, with uh, scrub types, if you woke up, you never, ever got it again. That was it. It's finished. Don't ask me why. They don't know. Um, so anyway, I was there. And anyway, uh, the beds weren't lovely beds like they've got today. You know the wire fences you see, people? That was the base of the bed. And, of course, they didn't have mattresses. They had uh, army blankets. If they had plenty of army blankets, the blokes sleeping above me had three. If they were short, they'd have two, you know. And if he was a big heavy man... He, a local man, you know, it was in the Port Moresby itself or something, appendix, all those sort of thing. When he got up, all the wire marks all over his back, you know, because then he had a pair of shorts on. You know. Anyway, when I woke up, I woke up and I must have been, I didn't realise, of course, I must have been yanked and I thought to myself, oh, geez, I'm a bloody, I'm a prisoner of war. That's what I thought I was. Because then he leaned over and he said, mate, he said, you're in, you're in the hospital at Port Moresby. He said, hang on, I'll sing out to sister. So anyway, up she, up she comes anyway. This is when I first seen Sister Ruth Campbell. And she just lay there charged. She said, oh, I can't do anything for you now. We're flat out. She said, what I'll do is I'll, I'll come back to you after I've had my tea tonight. And that's what she used to do for the next three nights. And in those three nights, she, uh, she washed me all over, put clean shorts on me. Uh, the next night she come back, she cleaned my teeth and gave me a haircut. Next night she come back and shaved me. Because we hadn't had a, a shower, clean air. We had no toothbrushes. We threw everything away. Every, everything was up here. Discontrolled everything. We had a chap with us and um, they called him Pretty Boy because he was much, very much like a lady in his face. And he had a toothbrush, he had beautiful teeth. He used to... Scrub them every night again when it rained, you know. And then one morning, somebody's saying, gee, the bloody pretty boy's throwing his toothbrush away. And somebody's, what did you do that for? It's too heavy to carry. That's, that's what your brain control. So in the end, nobody had anything. We had no shower. We must have stunk because we never had soap or anything like that. And these poor nursing sisters, they had to put up with all that. And all the clothes they took off you, if you had boots... Uh, they put in an old blanket. Everything was burnt because the, they were putrid. Well, at one stage, I was laying next to up in the jungle, freezing at night time, and I put my hand out because you couldn't see. I put my hand out and feel something. I thought, well, that's warm. I moved next to it. And then anyway, halfway through the night, I thought to myself, Jesus, what's wrong with me? You know, you couldn't see. And then when it got a bit brighter, uh, I was laying next to a corpse and there was maggots crawling all over me. So that's the sort of thing. And you're laid in between dead bodies and the, the smells... You have no idea. And you become immune to everything and anything. If you'd been told then that you'd live to 98 and still be out the front lawn regularly most weeks, mowing your, mowing your own lawn, etc., back then when you are that ill and that tired, would you have believed that? That's no. I didn't think I'd make 19. I'm not kidding. And the only reason that... I think that I made 19 because I told you I had a violent temper and at times I did things that I, maybe I should have done. But the, if you had to live the same as the enemy, if you didn't live the same way as they did and do what they did, you didn't survive. 
some some men were very very soft, and um, so you had to do the same things as as them. You had to live in their shoes, as the saying is. And I, I know it's hard to think, but I mean we. We never took the easiest way to explain. We never took any prisoners of, of any description. That's the easiest way. I'll, I'll tell you. That's the easiest way. Do you have any regrets? No, none whatsoever. None whatsoever. Because we knew, all knew what had happened if they got down here. Reg, when you recover to a point in that hospital in New Guinea, what happens to you next? Well, uh, this sister was so kind to me when I started to get better. Because uh, you never call them by their first name, to respect. So I said to her, uh, sister, why of all the men, only big marquee tents they were, why of all the men in this tent, why did you pick me out? You're so kind to me. And she said, uh, okay, she said, my brother's in the sickest division. And she said, you looked something like him. And I just hoped if he was sick, somebody's doing the same thing to him as what I'm doing for you. And um, Betty and I kept in touch with her. T- she came from Bundaberg in Queensland and we kept in touch with her till uh, she died in April 1985. And most nurses that went away, if they weren't married before they went away, they never married. Why do you think that is? Well, of a night time, um, don't ask me why, but everybody seemed to know when they're going to die. And it didn't make us how old or how, how young they were. The person they called out for, I want my mum. Because you know who, who the mum was? Became the, whatever nursing sister was on. And of course, they, there might be 10 dying in the one marquee tent in the one night. And of course, that means 10 times she becomes a, you know, somebody's mother. So I really have no idea how they put up with it. They're just unbelievable women in those days. Well, Reg, the nurses save your life. They save the lives of so many, and sadly, they can't save everyone. But for those that do not survive and those that do, they made those moments the best they could be, and I can see the effect they had on you, and their contribution cannot be understated. They're amazing human beings from everything you describe. You recover... Recover enough to be sent back out before you eventually find your way home. When was at Millen Bay? Um, our battalion was up in the mountains, what the rest of it. All the, all the infantry were up in the mountains. And anyway, they took us back to Port Moresby on the, one of our neighbour's ships, the destroyer, the Swan, uh, the Stewart, I'm sorry. And uh, when we got back, because when we, when we left, we was down there for three and a half, four months, and when we got back there, of course, it was Americans unloading the ship, American Negroes unloading the ship, driving uh, General Motors trucks, etc. So they took us back up to uh, uh, Owens Corner. Now, when we got there, our officer, his name was Bill Ryan, he was a real gentleman. Uh, he played rugby league for Australia in uh, the second row. And um, we got there late in the afternoon, just before the sun was going down. So we, we all sat down on... You know, on the ground anyway, Bill said, well, look, the snow got us going up tonight. We've got no idea where we're going. He said, we'll stop here and we'll go up first thing in the morning. So anyway, we stopped there and everybody just sort of lays back and, you know, starts to go to sleep. Anyway, all of a sudden somebody said, I better not swear, I, better, I won't do that. Uh, somebody said, who's this old so-and-so 
coming up here. This anyway, of course, everybody sat up, and then when I looked, I seen this bloke come up. And he was coming toward me now. I was still 18, 18 and a half, and anyway, he would have been well in his 60s. He had a pair of boots and no socks on. He had a pair of Bombay bloomers, which was English shorts with the real wide, and he had a, an old shirt, and I think it might have had one button on it done up, and an old hat. So anyway, up he comes, and he said to everybody, we're all laying there, what are you blokes? And, of course, somebody said, we just come from Melbourne Bay, and, of course, uh, everybody used to swear up there. Because he said, I don't care where you come from, what are you? And so somebody answered, oh, we're infantry. He said, oh, great. So he went in between and said, I'll have this half. And so anyway, all of a sudden, Bill Ryan, our officer, said, hang on. He said, I'm in charge of these men. And anyway, this bloke, this old codger said to him, well, who are you? He said, my name's Lieutenant Bill Ryan. He said, okay, Lieutenant Bill Ryan, you can call me General Tubby Allen. And you blokes just call me Tubby. <laughs> of course, we got such a shock. And anyway, that was half the story. So anyway, he said to Bill, what were your orders? And Bill said, well, the last was told, you know, was to, to report back up into the mountains, try and find a battalion. He said, okay, well, he said, I'm going to give you some new orders and these are from me to you. He said, in the morning, I'm still taking this half. That's how everyone, still taking this half. And I was amongst that half he took. And he said, um, your orders are your, the rest of your battalion is following the Goldie River down because we think the Japanese are trying to come up behind us and get in behind just what they used to try to do all the time. And once they got in behind you, that was the end of you. And he said, if you can't find your battalion, try and work your way back up into the trail, if you can find the trail, and use your brains from there. So anyway, um, that was all right. So anyway, um, he said, the last, he said, I'll... I'll take us up now. So anyway, we're walking up the golden staircase, which is 2,200 steps cut into the side of the mountain, old trees they were. Anyway, we got to the top, I said to him, what do you, you dress like that for? And he's real sensible what he said to me. He said, if I come up the front line and said to you, soldier, what's your problem? He said, what would you tell me? I said, nothing. He said, now you know why I'm dressed like this. He said, I can come up and say to you, what's your problem, soldier? Oh, we haven't got any bloody ammunition. We haven't got... And this that way, he said, I can, I can rectify it. And he was a, a real gentleman. Anyway, MacArthur sacked him when we got to uh, Rural Creek. That's where I collapsed too. Yeah, he was sacked there because he took three days to, to take Rural Creek. The Japanese were up high and was down low and we had to cross the river because we couldn't get across... And so he sacked him. But, of course, once he came back to Australia, they reinstated him straight away. He was a brilliant general. So that's when um, Lieutenant, uh, when General um, George Vasey came in. And he was, they were the only two good generals, the only two, in my opinion, had any, any guts in them. Um, as for blaming, they may, as well, they may as well went and picked a kid out of kindergarten. That's how, how good he was. He never... Yeah, he went as far as I was corner, as far as the jeeps would go, and then never ever saw him again ever. But uh, you know, but General George Vasey, he was a he was a marvelous man. Reg, tell me briefly about when you collapse at Aurora Creek and your eventual journey back home to Concord Hospital. Um, well, I, I only got uh, malaria at at, at I was at uh, Aurora Creek. Aurora Creek. 
and I was sent back for 14, they gave you 14 days treatment, 14 days quinine, three times a day, and the 15th morning, maybe was what you, what you like, that's it, you're finished, they are to you, back to your unit. So they take you back, drive you back to Owls Corn again, and up you go, and of course there's not only one of you going up, there could be 10, it could have been 15, it could be five, and you go back up in the mountains again, and if you couldn't find your own battalion, you just send your family Australians, that's it. You didn't know who they were, but they were Australians. That's where you stayed. But then how do you eventually find yourself back in Australia? Uh, well, that's when we went over to the rest of the 65 miles that the others didn't do. We went over to uh, Buna, Gona and San Ananda. We, we took uh, Buna first. Uh, then we took um, Gona and then San Ananda. That was the, the hard nut. We, we attacked there first on the 7th of December because I didn't know these dates till after the war, uh, the 7th of December 1942, and in the morning, the first morning, uh, we attacked at about half past three in the morning because the dawn was just breaking, and we lost 365 killed in the first 20 minutes, and we was there till the 22nd of January 1943. So we, we lost that many minutes, just unbelievable, and that's what I collapsed with scrub typhus, and I don't remember, I don't remember name or all, all, all I remember is um, I remember. My name was Scrounger, in case you don't know, during the war. Because you uh, could find I was, anything. I was good at it. <laughs> um, anyway, I found, I found an American Marine. He had a beautiful pearl handle 45. I thought, oh, I'll have that for myself. Anyway, some when I collapsed with uh, Scrub Typhus, it's your own conscience. Somebody else must have liked it, so they, they got that. And anyway, when I woke up, I was back in uh, Port Moore in the second IGH again, and because... I met up with Sister Ruth Campbell again and uh, that's when they put you under the bed till you woke up or you didn't. And anyway, um, she said to me, Reg, after I'd been there for about three, four weeks, uh, once I woke up, um, she said, look, there's a hospital ship coming up. It's called the Katuma of all names and was classed as a sea ambulance transport. Even though it was a hospital ship, it didn't have operation. It didn't have operating theatres or anything in it. And... Uh, she said, uh, "We're trying. The doctor and I are trying to get you on that, because when you collapsed on the on the twenty second, twenty first of January, because they put on a thing around your neck for when you come home, what what happened to you, etc. Um, the dates on that." So she said, "When you collapsed, what Japanese were left surrendered the next day? So I missed out on a day." And so she said, "There's nothing here for you, you know." So she said, "We're trying to get you on." on this uh, Katuma. Anyway, I said, I, I couldn't even stand up. Anyway, she said, we got it all worked out. Oh, she was a lovely lady. I said, and I said, what do you mean? She said, well, all I've got to do is get you on the ambulance. Once you put your foot inside that ambulance, she said, you're discharged. They've got to take it. So anyway, the morning came. Anyway, she said, okay, Reg, we've got to get you up. And I, you know, so anyway, the, the mail always got me up. Anyway, she had a bloke on one side of me. He was, he was uh, in plaster. That's what I used to put on you in those days if you had something bad. Plaster from here down to here. And he's hanging on this side of me. Another bloke on the other side with a walking stick. He'd shot, he was shot somewhere in his tummy. And she was at the back of me holding me, hanging on to me. So they got... She must have worked it out with the men as well because I was still pretty dopey. Always been pretty dopey. It comes of that. And then what, what the ambulance, I just heard her say, now. And next second, she gave me a terrific shove in the black, in the back, and the blacks let me go because I fell 
half in the ambulance. And the ambulance bloke said, oh, what happened? She said, he's fired, you fool. Put him in the ambulance. <laughs> That's how I got home. Well, Reg, you come home, you spend a long time convalescing at Concord Hospital, which is rather got a beautiful um, full circle moment to it, the fact you spend so much time now at the Kokoda Track Memorial Walkway in Concord with the hospital right towering over it in the next, in the next door car park. And that's a sort of wonderful synergy there. You come home, you recover, you marry your childhood sweetheart, Betty. She wasn't happy about you leaving her unmarried before the war, but you came home and got to have that beautiful life together. You have a family. One of your sons, Robert, is here with us today. And you are together for 66 years. You host royalty. You have a royal visit to your home one day. I just tell me about your wedding day and sort of when you got to realize, oh, I'm home and I've got to have that life I didn't expect to have back when you were over in New Guinea. Uh, our wedding day was on the 6th of October, 1945. Uh, we married us in Clemens Church at, at Marigville. Um, it's... Betty had already prepared for it because the moment, I, I always told her, the moment the war finishes, immaterial what happens, set the wedding date. So I was in, in Concord Hospital when the war f- finished. Matter of fact, the nursing sister came to the door um, and anyway, she sang out to everybody, gentlemen, the war is over. Now there was 45 of us in the ward, complete silence, there was nothing. Anyway, as I'd been there such a long time, she went away and she come back. She said, Chad, why weren't you happy? And I was lying about the rest of these men, but I said, I'm just laying there thinking to myself, I went in at 18, I'm there 23 and a half, I got no home, I got no uh, no clothes, because all my clothes I gave to the brothers underneath me. Uh, I've got no money, I've got nothing, I've got no job. I said, I can't go back to my trade because I'm covered in... Uh, they just like boils all over my legs. And um, and she said, oh, I never thought of that. And I said, with you, I presume you're going to continue as assistant. She said, yeah. So that that was the end, that was the end of the war. So anyway, Betty and I, got, as I said, we got married on 6th of October 1945. Um, we spent <laughs> we, um, one night, we went up to Janolin Caves the next morning. Uh, it was on a Sunday morning. Um, we went through the Orion Cave, which was the longest one up there, two and a half hours walking through it, and um, we came home. I don't remember no more. When I woke up, I was in Concord Hospital again, clubs with malaria. <laughs> and, of course, the nursing sister, I must tell you, this is hilarious. The ner- they put me back in the same ward, and the nursing sisters, when Betty came in that night, didn't they give us hell, you know? One night, and you put him back in bloody hospital. <laughs> So that's that was our wedding night, yeah. A memorable wedding night for it sure. It was, yeah, very, mm. very, but, you know, I was very, very, very lucky to get such a marvellous lady. What uh, career did you end up having? Um, well, I, I had no money, so I had to look for a job where you get the most money. So uh, I knew two blokes um, before the war and they were in a, in a, working in an iron foundry and because in those days... It's hard work. So they said to me, oh, I went and said, I said, can you get me a job? And they said, yeah, no problem. So they got me a job and they knew I became a furnace man for 12 years. And um, the furnace, when you drop the furnace after 12 years, uh, the heat is that bad that everybody's got to go home. 
even the lad in the office had to go home. So I used to go then and work in a bakery, Johnson's Bakery at Enmore, till 7 o'clock the next morning. And this, I had two jobs. And then it, I stayed there for 12 years. And then I, my brother-in-law opened a truck and business. So I used to go and work for him of a night time. And in the end, I took on driving trucks for 38 years. And that's what I finished up as, truck driver. And I think an important thing to circle back to is that before going to war, your mother warned you about the similarities you had with your father. And you even acknowledged that you had a temper Yet you, your father came home from war scarred and he drank his demons and you did not. And you handled your post-war life quite differently. Yes, we did. And not only myself, but my brothers and sisters, we all swore, we didn't know at the time, of course, we're all different ages, but we all swore we're never going to drink like, and none of them did, except my brother who went, he was in the 9th Division, the one who was a plumber, and he never drank when he went away. But when he came home, as I said... Um, he was shot pieces, uh, not not shooting. Metaphorically me- shot. Mentally, yeah. yeah. So uh, they put him in Kenmore, and, as I said, for about 14 months. And when he came out of the army, he got married. And um, Before he was married, uh, he'd, he'd wake up in the morning. He used to live at home with mum and the father. And he'd wake up and say to my mother, oh, I don't feel well today. I think I'll stop home. And she'd say, no, Jack, you get yourself to work, you know. And, of course, once you go... You don't come home then, you stay at work. And so he married a young lady called Phyllis Jones and she was the opposite. When he'd wake up, he'd say, oh, I don't feel like going to work. She said, oh, let's go to the pictures. So that was the worst thing in the world for him. And so in the end, um, they got divorced and um, he fell down the stairs at the, uh, in King, up at King's Cross and um, they rang. They rang me at home and said, "You know, your brother's just fallen down. And he's in a bad way." And anyway, he died. In, he died in Sydney Hospital. So, you know, but he. I actually wanted to go with him because I knew that I was tougher than what, as the saying goes. I didn't know in war, warlike, but I, I was with my bad temper. I was better off than what he was. Well, Reg, you have. A very full life. You and Betty have a wonderful 66 years married together. She sadly passed away over a decade ago now. You found a reinvigoration and new purpose in life by becoming a volunteer guide at the Kokoda Track Memorial Walkway at Concord. And now you are there most days of the week. You're guiding school children through. And it's this wonderful, you've uh, walked me along the track very kindly. And it's this wonderful a structure with all these different stops about which represent the different parts of the trail and they're very informative about the history there what battles did and uh, occurred there and some of the personalities and that kind of thing and there's a beautiful artistic uh memorial in the center of it as well it's very well done and very peaceful a wonderful place to learn and reflect and it's a wonderful contribution that we have an actual you know, veteran of Kokoda. I know you're not the only one who's done it, but you are. You know, we have Kokoda veterans there, guiding the next generation through. I mean, you you have great grandchildren. Uh, you know, you understand the importance of passing on these lessons. For you're not you tell your story, but you do that on behalf of all those who couldn't come home or are no longer with us today. And it's just such a wonderful contribution that to Australian society in the 2020s. So thank you for everything that you did during the war, but also for what you're still doing today in the community. Well, thank you very much. But uh, 
it, it saved my life too, as you as you will know. I mean, when Betty, the only reason I went over there, Betty and I used to often go over there because such a beautiful place. We'd have our lunch, you know, and uh, it wasn't until she passed away that I saw. I went over there once for the last time, but uh, a couple of ladies were there and. Um, they were standing, look at one of the big slabs of memorial there, and anyway, uh, his name's Dick Whittington, and he had no boots on, and anyway, he was shot underneath the eye. And uh, one of the fuzzy was his Ray Pell Umbrero was what, had his arm around him, taking him along. Anyway, one lady said to the other, I wonder what happened to him. Well, I'm standing there in the early hours this morning, and anyway, I thought to myself, miserable bloody, why did you tell her? So I just said to her, I said, Would you like to know what happened to George? And she said, Oh, yeah, how do you know? I said, yeah, because I was up there as well. And when I told, you know, he, they took the bullet out of his eye and then they sent him back up the front line and uh, eight weeks later he died of scrub typhus. And then what I didn't know, that one of them knew Alice King, so she rang her on the, on the mobile and that's how I became a guide. And I've been there ever since. I'm still there, except for when COVID won't let us go back. Well, thankfully, you are back there now, and it's a—it's just so great to see you there. It is living history in so many regards. It's a special thing to have, and I'm very proud of the fact we're also publishing a memoir that the wonderful Daniel Lane is writing because you tell the story so well, but the actual written medium, getting it down on paper, that's wonderful as well, and it's just great to see that book coming out and you know, for the Australian public to have that record of one digger service at Kokoda. Yeah, well, I represent the rest. I always say over there, I represent, I represent all the ones who didn't come home, including nursing sisters as well. That's one thing I've insisted on over there, is when we have the, um, the ode, we always remember nursing sisters because without them, we wouldn't be here. Raj, if you had one piece of wisdom or lesson you wanted to pass on to the next generation of Aussies, the younger generation, what would you want it to be? What would you say to them? Be kind to ladies. Because you don't, know, you don't realise how, how much you need them. Reg Chard, you are a kind, beautiful soul. You have given so much for this country and for your fellow brothers and sisters. Pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm Alex Lloyd, and you've been listening or watching Life on the Line. The Digger of Kokoda, the official biography of Reg Chard, is out now in print, ebook, and audiobook. You can follow this podcast at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, at LOTL Pod on Twitter, and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. To see photos of Reg, you can watch the end credits of the YouTube video of this podcast. Go to our website, check out our social media life on the line is brought to you by thistle productions artwork by big cat design theme music by dan van Werkhoven. closing music 1942 ode to ted bell by the externals thank you for listening and lest we forget Looking for adventure, the sun is warm, the sky is summer blue. I don't know why there's laughter, cause we're headed for disaster.
Larping is the last thing we should do. We're headed for New Guinea and the Owen Stanley Ranges. The green and rain, the likes we'd never viewed. The Japs were kicking asses, they were giving us a beating. And so it was in 1942. Jot too pretty, art too sweet, I'll bet you never will. You're too precious and so sincere, I'll bet. Nobody really won. It just left us all in pieces. Sometimes that's all we had left to chew. And when it was all but done, and our mothers had lost their sons, we headed home to have a beer or two. And as the politicians gather, none of us seemed to matter. The filibustering was nothing new. Me and me mates, we talk true blue. And I'll tell you a thing or two. There's nothing here for you to celebrate. Job to Sun's on me lap, and I ain't never going back. For me, there's no more killing left to do. I'm sure that war's not done. Australia's got a lot of sons. And soon enough, we'll send them off to blue. Job to Just as I sincere.